0: Okay, so we're learning Sadi Yemo. Let's just um, give us a little, a little running start here to what we're talking about. So we're talking about the concept, if a, uh, if a person can make a transaction on something that hasn't yet come to the world. We'll see the classic case of that today is where a person has a tree, and the tree doesn't have fruits on it right now. It's still the winter. It's not springtime. And he says to his friend, you know what? I'm selling you. Let's make a transaction that I'm selling you the fruits that are going to come. And the question is, is that binding? Is that binding? Because how could I sell you something that's not here? On the other hand, maybe they're going to come. And if they come, then, then, then this can be the kenya, this can be the method of transaction, on those things that will come. So, and the basic issue is, could I really have DAS? Can I lock my mind and intent in on something that's not here? That's more or less the question. Uh, and the way that this is coming to relevance to us is we're talking about a Yavama, a woman who's supposed to do Yibam. So the Torah says that she's supposed to do Yibam. She's, she's not supposed to go and marry somebody else. It's forbidden for her to go to marry somebody else. The question is if she does, is there validity? Could there be a binding marriage when she's a Shemarat Yavam? So it was a dispute between Rav and Shmuel uh, within the Rabbinin's opinion. Within Rabbi Akiva's opinion, it seemed clear that the marriage is not tofez because Rabbi Akiva's position is whenever the Torah says don't do something, whenever there's a lav, a divorcee to a Kohen, a widow to a Kohen Gadol. According to Rabbi Akiva, whenever there's a lav, there's never tzfisis Kedushin after the fact. Even if they try to do it, it can never work. So, according to Rabbi Akiva, a Yavama who goes and marries a random stranger, it's definitely the kadushin is not binding. We had a dispute within the Rabbanun's view. What about um, if the Yavama would go lashuk? So, it's a dispute. Rav said it's not, it's not binding after the fact, and Shmuel said it is uh, binding. So, what happened was, let's start from Saadi Bez, Ahmed Bez. We'll get a real running start here we could see it in a Mishnah, because the Mishnah said, if a man is doing an act of kedushin and he tells a woman, um, that you should become a Kiddushin to me after I convert to Judaism, so meaning that currently, the man is not Jewish, and he's trying to be mekaddish to women, that it should take effect after he converts. Or he, the woman is currently not Jewish. And he says that the, that the Kedushin should take effect after you convert. After I become freed from slavery, you become freed from slavery. A man goes to a married woman and he says, I'm being mikdash you... When? After your husband dies. I'm a Kadish, a woman, I say. It's, my, it's a wife's sister. and say, oh, I should be in the Should be khal after my wife dies. And here's the one that we want. A guy goes to a Shomer and he says, I'm making condition. I know it can't take effect now, but it should take effect after you get Chalitza. So in all these cases, the Mishnah says in mikdash she's not betrothed. Why? Because it's lo olam. You're trying to be mikdash somebody who currently you can't be Mekadish. You're Let's say you're going over to the non-Jewish woman. You can't make the kedushin now. It won't work. You're saying, oh, the kedushin should take effect after your conversion. So that's lo olam. You're making a and you're trying to make the transaction on something which currently cannot work. So the Mishnah of this time holds that it doesn't take effect. But one of the examples is telling the Shomer Siyavam that the kedushin should take effect. After she gets chalitza, clearly we see that before the chalitza, the kedushin cannot go in effect. So, the Gemara, so what do we see? We see there's no tzvizis kedushin. So, Amalei Rav Yanai told Rabbi Yochanan, if I didn't pick up the shard, Mi to, to say, you wouldn't have found the diamond underneath it. Which is an expression of the way of saying is, don't think you've made such a great discovery. The reason why it's not such a great discovery in the Mishnah, as the Gemara goes on to tell us, because if not for the fact that you were praised by a great person like Rabbi Akiva, I would just say that that Mishnah could be like Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva in Kiddushan talks in Machavi Lavin. Yes, it's true that the author of that Mishnah holds there's no Tfises Kiddushan for the Yavama. That's true. If she marries somebody outside of her Yavam, the Kiddushan is not valid. But that could just be only within Rabbi Akiva's view. Rabbi Akiva's view is that any lav there's no Tfises Kiddushan. But within the Rabbonin's view, where generally there is Tfises Kiddushan for a lav, is there an exception that Yavama Lashuk is any worse? We, don't, we can't prove that way, one way or the other, from the Mishnah. So now, now that we've defended that way, that maybe it's only going like Rebbe Akiva, now the Gemara gets into a tangent. Here we go. If it's only Rebbe Akiva, then what's the whole issue here? That right now he can't make the Kedushin so he can't transact the Kedushin for a later point? That's not true. The Kedushin should still take effect. If it's Rebbe Akiva, we're going to happen to draw on our knowledge of Rebbe Akiva's position elsewhere. That is, that you could make a transaction Action on something which didn't come to the world. So basically, what we're doing now is we're saying like this: if your only line of defense is to say that the Mishnah here. Is going like Rebbe Akiva, and that's why there's no Tzvizizis Kedushin. I'm going to run you into problems because the Mishnah is saying there's no Kedushin. If it can't take effect now, you can't make it take effect for afterwards. So I'm going to show you that if Rebbe Akiva actually holds, you could make a haknah on Davash Lobel Olam. You could make a transaction on something which didn't come to the world. And that will force us to say the Mishnah is not Rebbe Akiva, which forces us to say it's the Rabbanan, which forces us to see that there's no thesis Kedushin on Eva Melashok even within the Rabbanan's opinion. So where are we going to draw on this Rebbe Akiva from? So now we get to the top of the it's nine shani a woman says to her husband Konim, she makes a nether she forbids all of the things that she's going to do all of her handiwork literally like all of the all of the jobs that she's going to do she says my husband cannot get any benefit from so a person has the ability to offer something that they own on somebody else. I can offer, you know, my property. I can say that my, my property is forbidden to you. I could do such a thing like that. Here the woman is saying that the things that she's going to make, whatever she's going to produce, she didn't produce them yet, but whatever she produces, whatever, whatever jobs she's going to do, the effect of those jobs are going to be forbidden on her husband. So the question is, is that, is that neither binding? And the reason why it's probably not binding, what's going on, is because since the husband supports his wife, the rabbi said that he's entitled to her handiwork. So if a woman has a job, the husband actually is entitled halakhically to, to, to enjoy from it. It's not just a random stranger trying to enjoy from her handiwork. It's the husband has entitled, that's rights of marriage. He supports her and he has to give her food and clothing, whatever it is. And if she has whatever job she likes, part of, the, part of it goes to the husband. So Adem Tsar of Law the Tanakama says he doesn't even have to be made for. It. He doesn't have to annul her vow. A, a husband could annul a vow, but he doesn't even have to. Why? Because it never went into effect. She's offering something she has no capacity to offer. And the point is, is that I can't offer something that's owed to you. I can offer my property on somebody else who's a stranger or a friend or somebody I like, but I can't offer it on someone who has a right to it. So if the husband has entitled benefits to his to his wife's handiwork, she has no ability to make such a nether and say, "Oh, my handiwork is going to be us or to you." It's not, it's not fully hers to make that decision. So Rabbi Akiva says he offered. Rabbi Akiva says, no, he still should make that far. Why? She may produce more than he is entitled to. And the point is, you know, a woman can have so many different jobs. It, it, it's, not, it's not limitless to however much she owns. It all goes to the husband. There's a certain core amount that the rabbis legislated. But if she's going to produce more than that, then she's entitled to that and her husband is not. So she should be able to aser the extra part. And if she could aser the aser part, the extra part, that if the husband's smart, he should be made for the nether. Why should he be made for the nether? Because it could impact him, right? He, and that, there is an ability. The Torah said a husband can be made for the wives of the, the vows of his wife if they impact him. So therefore Rabbi Akiva is saying practically he should make the afar. Tanakama was saying, oh, it's just wages which are owed to him anyway, so why bother with the annulment? Rabbi Akiva is saying he should annul because of, of the part which might be the excess beyond what is owed to him? Now, what does this have to do with us? What it has to do with us is that in our case, what is the woman ossering What's the whole nether? The nether is on something which hasn't come into the world. So I could osser something I own. I could say my property is forbidden to you. But what's she offering? The thing that I will make? She says whatever my hands make, whatever is going to come and emerge because of my work, that I'm gonna offer on you. But it's not here yet. So if it's not here yet, how at all is she making a nether? It must be that a person is able to make a transaction. And when I say transaction, it's loose. You're able to impact something in Allah, even if it's not here yet. She's able to say my future handiwork should become Azur. So if that's Rabbi Akiva's view, so that's we proving he holds all the maqadas. So the same thing if a person is marrying a woman who's still waiting for Chalitza, according to Rabbi Akiva, it should be able to go in effect after she has Chalitza, even though at the time that he gave her the ring, it couldn't have gone in effect. So the Gemara says, no, it was said in that case, the Mishra is dealing with a case where the woman didn't just say, whatever I make in the future should become Asr. So she didn't say that. She said, my hands become consecrated to the creator of these hands. Meaning to say that she's, the vow is really taking place on her hands. The Adivis nuba Alma, the hands are in the world. Now the Gemara is very subtle. A nether is all about what you say. That's why you can make you know you could play around with these things. So since I worded it that as not shot, I'm answering the future handiwork. The handiwork's not here. I'm answering my hands for what handiwork they will produce. So what's the nether taking effect on? The nether is taking effect on the hands, and the hands are here right now. And that's the key. That's the subtlety. If I would offer future handiwork, the handiwork's not here. But if she ossers her hands now for what handiwork they will make, then it could take effect on, uh, on, on the hands right now and therefore it's not a lo lobalola. So we're coming out that from maybe Akiva's position here, you don't see that he holds you can make a transaction on a lo lobalola. Now the Mark continues and again this is all just one big tangent today about whether you can make a Kenyan Adavish law we have a dispute about this he said as follows Rav Rav like Rav Rav and Rav holds like got it from Rav so there's a whole long list of Rabbis one who got from the other who all say Adar Addek all the following people that we just listed all hold that you could make a transaction on something which hasn't yet come to the world. One of the people in the list of where we are, the source of it all was Rabbi Akiva. So these people, that person, Rabbi Nachman, who listed the whole list of people hold you could make a transaction, and one of them, the source of them, all was Rabbi Akiva. They must hold that Rabbi Akiva you see in that statement does hold you could Maxwell What we just said is Rabbi Akiva may hold you cannot. Just the case was you she was she was offering her hands. That argues on this person who listed Rebbe Akiva as one of the people who hold that you could make a transaction on something which is not here. So now that we went that list, we're going to try to go through the list one by one and pick out where we see each of these individual Rabbandons saying, Adama'akta wa shavloh. Ravuna Mai, and really Ravuna's case is the classic case. What's the classic case? Here it is somebody owns a tree and he's selling the future fruit from the tree to his friend. The fruit's not here yet. I'm making a transaction now that the fruit which emerges will belong to you. So I'm Rav says like this before the fruit grow, I can pull out of the deal. Because even if you hold about the mash of the Olam, but it's only going to go in effect when the fruits are here before the fruits are here Definitely I could pull back. So if I want to pull back before the fruits come I can pull back and, but Misha Bola Olam once the fruits come in your I can't pull back the sale went through because Rav Huna holds that the kinyan that I made, even though it was made before the fruits were there, but as soon as the fruits come, boom, the fruits automatically belong to the buyer. Rav Huna holds, despite the fact that they weren't around at the time of the Kenyan, the kinyin can still transfer them. Whereas Rav Nachman says, no. Rav Nachman holds, you cannot make a on something that's not here. So even once the fruits come, who owns them once they emerge? The seller. Because according to Rav Nachman, the transfer that we made prior to the existence of the fruits, it never goes through. We agree, let's say the buyer went and picked up his fruits, and the seller didn't say anything, and then, you know, a month later he comes and he sends him a bill. He sends him a bill, he says, you ate my fruits. Rav Nachman would agree that, that the, the, the buyer who ate the fruits doesn't owe him a penny, because we assume that the seller was mochel. In other words, the seller made the sale on the fruits before they existed. According to what we hold in Rav Nachman, the sale didn't go through. There's no sale. Really, the fruits, when they come out, belong to the buyer. But if the seller doesn't say anything and he allows the buyer to pick the fruits and take them and eat them, then he can't come crying later that you ate my fruits. We assume he was mojo those fruits. That's the assumption that is made. All right, but either way, we see a dispute here about whether you can make the Kenyan on the fruits which didn't come to the world, and Rafuna holds that you could make a transaction. Where did we get Raf from? Somebody said to his friend, somebody's doing a real estate deal, right? People do this all the time today. That, that, that I'm going to make a transaction with you on a future asset, right? I don't own the asset right now. I can't give it to you right now. It doesn't belong to me. I'm going to close on a deal. And when I close on the deal, I won't own something and I'm making a transaction on that future thing now. That's exactly the case. Somebody says this to him, This field which I'm going to purchase. Now, once I go and purchase it, it should be given to you from right now. So, The law according to Rav is that the recipient acquires it, even though at the time that it's being given to him, it doesn't even belong to the benefactor. He didn't get it yet. He didn't close on the deal. But, but, but since, once he goes and closes on the deal, he comes to him, so therefore he's able to make the transaction even now. That's the opinion of Rav. Rab'yana Rabbiana Rab'yana Ehoza Ekerbchia. Where is this? Rab'yana Haveleritsa, Rab'yana here to share crop. Now to just understand the story here, we're gonna look at a story. The point is, is that on Shabbos, let's take a step back. Before you eat from fruits, you have to take off chumas and Maisos. We've spoken about that a little bit recently. You have to take off chumas and Maisos. Before that is Tevil. You're not allowed to eat the grain or the produce. Now, there's another halacha that you can't take off chermas and mazars on Shabbos. The reason is, it's like you're fixing, because the, the stuff is forbidden without it, because right? you, can't, you can't eat it before you take off chermas. Once you take off chermas, it's like you're fixing the stuff. So, so the issue was that Rav had a sharecropper. To have a mazari, so he would bring him on Friday afternoon, he would bring him a basket of fruit. Like that was part of the, the wages, right? Sharecropper works in your field, and he gives part of the produce to you and keeps part of the produce for himself. So the sharecropper usually delivered a basket of fruits, Rabbi Yanai, every Friday. One day, he was very late, below Asa. He didn't come at the regular time. And Shabbos was coming. So Rabbi Yanai was concerned that the, the, the fruit wouldn't show up to Shabbos. And if it didn't show up until Shabbos, it would be too late to take off trima. There goes his dessert. He needs the fruit for Shabbos. So what he did was he took fruit from his house and he said, "These fruits are miser for the fruits that will come to my possession." So that he's making a transfership. He's making a transfer on something which is not yet here. He's trying to take off these fruits to be miser for fruits that he are not yet in his possession. So Asalak came to then came to ask Rav if he did right. If he did, I do the right thing. A Malay Rav Chia said, "You did well, and I can prove to you from a pasuk." That what you've done is correct and that the Kenyan went through. And therefore, when the fruits came, they were already miser. The Tanya, says the bride, The Pasuk says, when it's talking about taking off miserus it says that part of it is that you'll learn to fear God every day. miserus forces you to fear God every single day. What does that mean, every single day? It's referring to Shabbos and Yantif, meaning to say there's something about Shabbos and Yantif. Relating to of myos that will make you fear God even more. In what sense? Lamai Ilim If you say that the Torah is saying that by Torah law you're allowed to take off of maizros on Shabbos, and that's the of the that it's not forbidden to take off of maizros on Shabbos. Maybe that's what it means. Maizros will make you fear God every day. You'll do the mitzvah of taking off of myos even on Shabbos. Obviously, it's not the pasuk. Why? Because Israel called the Shri total the do we need a pasuk to permit moving the tevil on Shabbos, which is only midravana? Meaning, the whole issue of tithing on Shabbos is only in a midravana. That it's like you're fixing. That's all in isra midravana. So if it's all in isra midravana, it cannot be that the Torah is talking about such a thing and allowing you to do that. the pasuk doesn't talk about an isra midravana the Pasuk must be talking about such a situation. What does that mean, such a, such a situation? The Pasuk is talking about where somebody doesn't have the fruits before Shabbos to take off trimus and maeshros. And the Pasuk is saying exa- that you're allowed to do exactly like Raviana did. You're allowed to take off maeshros in advance from something in your home to exempt fruits which will come to your house. And that, well, that's exactly what the Pasuk is saying, is that for the, for the sake of owning Shabbos, you can be mafresh, trimus and maeshros on things which haven't yet come into existence. And therefore we see it's okay. The problem with this Gemara, which Tosef struggles with, is that if by Torah law you're allowed to take off trumos and misers on Shabbos itself, if that's true, so then by Torah law, what would the scenario ever be where someone's trying to take off trumos and misers on Friday in advance for something that Yad yakum? That's, it, we're going in circles. If you're allowed to take it off on Shabbos itself by Torah law, and that's why that's not what the Pazak is talking about, then why does it make more sense to the Gemara to say that he's talking about on Friday taking off Tremes and Maizos in advance of the fruits which will come? By Torah law, let me just wait till Shabbos, until they're in front of me. Whenever I have a fruit that I want to eat, I'll take off Tremes and Maizos on the spot. So it's hard to understand in the Gemara, what the Gemara how the Gemara is expounding this. But somehow it seems the Gemara is expounding the Pasuk of fearing God all your days. in reference to Shermos and Maestros that the Torah is giving a permit to a person to take off Shermos and Maestros and advance before Shabbos to exempt fruits which haven't yet come into the person's possession. Okay, so we see it's allowed. So the Gemara says, It was a dream that was read to me. What did they, what, what did they read to me in my dream that Friday night? They read to me the Pasuk Kone about a cane, some sort of wood that was all splintered. So what, what, what in the world is the meaning of such a dream? They were, they were referring to the Pasuk. There's a Pasuk which says, You've relied upon the support of a reed which is uh, splintered. Meaning to say that you've re- sometimes you go and you get a cane, you think it's good and supportive, but really it's all splintered. It's no good. So so to here, you've relied on something which is not something you can really rely on. That was the meaning of my dream. God was showing me my dream that I did the wrong thing. So, so the Rebbe responded, This is the pasuk that was being said. "Kara lo yishbar." Hashem will not break a splintering rain. He wanted. He will not extinguish the flax that is burning. Meaning that Hashem is saying that even when things are vulnerable, they will not. They will not break. So here he's saying to him, you know, even though it was a it was a novel pasuk, you did okay. Everything that you did was just fine. Everything was fine by taking off the trimus and masters in advance. So everything is fine. He did okay, and we have a source from here that these, these rabbis held, you can be make hakna on and slabalallah. Rebbe, how do we know what Rebbe holds? You should not deliver a slave back to his master. What in the world does this mean? How do I have a slave? So it's if, simple prat in the passage is: if there's a fugitive slave, don't return him. Help him go free. Right? That's the simple prat. But Rebbe says it means <speaking in> that <language> we're talking about someone who purchased a slave on condition to free him. You purchased him now on condition to free him. And the Pasuk is saying, don't, don't make him a slave. So where, what do I see over here? Like, what is the case? And the Gemara elaborates, hey, he the case is, I'm not the, of lay. the one buying him wrote the slave in a document. He wrote him a document that he was freeing him before he owned him. He said, once I go purchase you, you retroactively acquire your freedom from this moment right now. So he's making a kid. He doesn't own the slave now, but he's saying, once I buy you, I'm freeing you now. So if you hold will, that makes sense, you could do such a thing, that you can make that transaction of freedom, transfer freedom to him, even before you purchased him. Rebbe Meir, where does Rebbe Meir say that you can make a king of Shabbat Olam The Tanya? says in again, a non-Jewish man is telling a Jewish woman, I'm, I'm, I'm marrying you after I convert. Or a Jewish man is telling a non-Jewish woman, I'm marrying you after you convert. If you have two slaves, one slave is telling the other, after I go free, or after you go free, we'll marry each other. Again, he goes to a married woman, after your husband dies, we should be married. A person goes to his wife's sister, and he says the same thing. After my wife dies, then we will be married. Or after then we'll be married. In all these cases, she's not even after the event takes place, because the tanakama holds, the Kinion cannot take effect, before it's possible now. Rabbi Meir Omer, Rabbi Meir says, Mikudashez, Me she could become Mikudashez, meaning that's exactly the dispute. Rabbi Meir, the minority opinion holds, you could make a kinyan on davash lobal olam. By the way, just to make that point, I mean, this is stating the obvious, but even though we're listing all these rabbis who hold you could make a kinyan on davash there olam, there, there are many minority opinion. meaning even though there are many individuals all that way, that's the, 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 the anomalous opinion. The regular mainstream opinion is that you cannot make a transfer on Dabr lobalola Says the Gemara Blah Zuban Ya'akov, Titania, Yetzirah, Kenara Ya'akov, Afilo Amar, somebody, even if an owner says, let the cut fruits of this row, in other words, one row in the field was already cut, the grain was already cut, and you say that the cut r- fruits should become trimah for the attached fruits, or you said that the attached fruits of this row should become trimah for the cut fruits of the other of the other row, and in both cases, he says it should only go in effect once the fruits grow to a third and are then picked. Meaning right now, they're not yet grown to a third, so they're not yet obligated in Shema. Trimah is only obligated once the produce grows to a third of its normal size. So you're making the transaction, the transfer of the trimma here, before it's at that point. Now, once the, the fruits grew to a third and are picked, where the trimma can take effect, is words stand, meaning the designation of trimma can take effect even on something, even when the grain is not in a state of when it's obligated in trima. You're still able to do it now that it should take effect at a later point. So again, we see that, uh, like a Mavlat Yaakov, you can make a keen on And what about Rabbi Akiva? So this is the Rabbi Akiva that we started with. It says in the Mishnah, according to the people, the woman who said to her husband, that I'm offering all my handiwork to you. Ainotarak Lafa, the Tanakhama says, there's no need to annul her vow because it never started in the first place, and all of her handiwork is owed to her husband. Rabbi Akiva says, he offered the husband should revoke it, because she might produce more than he is owed, in which case the excess amount would become forbidden. But if he'll not it, it won't. So what do I see? That even though the handiwork is not in the world, she's already making a transfer. She's offering it on her on her husband. So I see in Rabbi Akiva Adam Olam. So we end in a dispute where Rabbi Akiva's position is. Some people list Rabbi Akiva's position as part of a list of Adam Olam. Remember, we saw that other people say no. really Rabbi Akiva holds ain't Adam Olam. The is here is that she offered her hands. For the future handiwork which they will make, and the hands are in the world right now. So, in conclusion, where are we? Can you make Kedushinana al Hashok? We don't end in a clear place. Because we could defend that the one too old you can't are only Rabbi Akiva, but in the Rabbana you might be able to. I, if it's Rabbi Akiva, why can't you make a Olam. Maybe Rabbi Akiva does hold Eina Damak It seems like in some of the cases brought earlier, we're emphasizing Kandu Yivamal Yes, very good, very good. Sometimes you say that the Kenyan should take place from now. So, and whereas, let's say like, the, when I sold you the fruits, right, I didn't say, once the fruits come, now they're yours. I said, once the fruits come, they'll be yours. And like, that's what clearly we say, until the fruits come, of course you could pull out. The question is, what, if it's binding, once the fruits come. It sounds like the question of Allah is, could I make the transaction for the future time, when right now it's not here? Other of the cases, as you notice, yeah. It sounds a little different. I, 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 I go to a field and I say, I go to my friend, I say, I'm giving you a present, I'm giving it to you now, the field that I will buy in the future. And the point is, could it become yours now, despite the fact that I'm yet to go on the, go, go on the, go on the field? And that's an interesting point. What does it have to do with now? Maybe, do, why is he even using that word? Is it, does it help something? Is it necessary? So that's Tysus' question. Tossus introduces some new concepts that, um, that besides for the issue of lobala olam, there may be an additional confusion about whether or not the Kenyan is separated from the time of the effect, and that might be an additional issue, and sometimes it applies, sometimes it doesn't. There's a the whole complexity about that additional point. Now we go back to something, really what this whole parrach is about. What did we learn in the parrach? That a single witness is believed to allow a woman to remarry, right? That's this whole parrach. And the reason is, we feel bad, a woman is trapped, she doesn't know what happened to her husband. A single witness says, I know the husband died, it, we, we make an exception, based and gives permission to the, to the woman to remarry. What about in the case of a Yavama? In other words, can a woman do Yibam based upon the testimony of one witness? So what happened? Her husband went went, went away. And the question is that a single witness comes and says the husband died, but she doesn't want to stop remarry. The question is, could she remarry her brother-in-law and do Yibam? That's the question. So why would it be any different? So the Gemara explains. Time Maybe the reason why we rely on one person is because even though it's only one witness, but it's avidi Aglui. Avidi means it's destined to be revealed. Meaning you might not know today if the husband's alive or dead, but at some point everybody's gonna find out, right? It's going, probably the news eventually will be, will, will, be, will be disclosed. So why would I lie about something I can get trapped in my lie? I'll lie about something if I can't get caught. But if I could get caught, I'm deterred from lying. So a single witness generally isn't believed, but here, because it's avidil Gluye, whether or not the husbands are alive or dead, that's what's behind the concept of why we believe even a single witness. So if that's the reason, hachanami, so too, with regard to doing gibbam, the single witness can be believed because he wouldn't lie about something he could get trapped in. What's the real reason why we believe a single witness? It's not because of the single witness so much. It's really just because... It's, it, it's combined with the variable that we assume the woman will investigate carefully before she would get remarried. Meaning, if there's a single witness, and in addition, the assumption is that the tendency of a married woman is that she'd investigate before she gets remarried, the rabbis were able to allow her to, give permit, to permit her to remarry, not just because of the witness, but also in combination with the variable that we assume that she'll investigate. But how in our case of Yibam, she may have a special affection. She may be really into her brother-in-law as part of her family. And that's part of the key. It's natural for her to want to do Yibam. So if it's natural that she's going to want to do it, she's not going to investigate carefully. And this is a key psychological point. The reason why we assume a woman will investigate is because she doesn't have have a natural, she's not in another relationship yet. She doesn't know anybody, right? She's been married. So now, just because she finds that her husband dies, she's not gonna run into a new relationship before she first clarifies her husband is dead. But if the new relationship is with someone that she already kind of knows, it's her brother-in-law and the family It's right, it's normal, it feels right, so then we're concerned she won't investigate properly and therefore we cannot give her permission just because there's one witness. So the Gemara says, So really what does the Gemara want to know? The Gemara is really, I mean practically we want to know if she could do Yivam if one witness said her husband died. But really what the Gemara wants to know is the fundamentals of this parak. Why are we really believing the one witness? Is it because we assume he won't lie about something he can get caught in? Or is it because, or is it because we assume she'll investigate properly? So Amrulu Rav Sheshach is trying to it. We see from the Mishnah. It said in the Mishnah and yesterday's Da'af, Amrulu her husband and child went overseas and they originally told her your child died and then they said, your husband died. So they were telling her that, that it was a scenario of Yibam because the child died before her husband. She did Yibam. Then afterwards they said, actually, we got it wrong. It was the other way. The husband died first, then the child. So your Yibam was forbidden because it's not Yibam if the child was alive at the time of the death of the husband. So the Mishnah said yesterday, she has to leave the yavam because it's an erva to her. Any children that she has are Mamzerim from it. So what does this have to do with us? What's the case? Meaning, how many witnesses originally told her she was obligated in Yibam? And how many witnesses are now telling her that, she, that she's doing the wrong thing? If you say the initial testimony that the child died first was two witnesses, and then it was overruled by two witnesses, saying the child died second. Why are you relying on these? You might maybe rely on these. Meaning, now you're saying she has to leave her husband and everything's bamzerim. Why? If it's a two against two, then as long as we had this concept of last week, if it's a two against two, as long as the parties involved are confident that they're not sinning, basin looks the other way because we don't know. So if it's a two against two, two witnesses says she's allowed to do even, two witnesses says she can't, why are we saying that she has to leave the mamzer, We're saying the child is a Mamzer, a Suffolk Mamzer, at best, or I should really say at worst, it's only a doubtful Mamzer, right? Two, two Edomar saying that it is yibum. Maybe you will tell me that the dana wasn't precise. When he said it was a mamzer, really he just meant it's a possible mamzer. Father, for the end of the Mishnah said, in the third case, where a woman got remarried on the basis of some testimony and then two witnesses said he was alive at the time she remarried and then he only died afterwards, the Mishnah said, the child that she had before the news is a mamzer, a child conceived afterwards is not a mamzer, because there they're telling her at the time you remarried your husband was alive, now he's dead. So a child that she conceived before is a mom's because, because her husband was alive. A child that she conceives from now on is not a mom's because now the husband's dead. So the, the Tana got very precise over there. He said the first child, the last child, he got very, very precise. We see he's saying it precisely. So if he's saying it precisely, so we assume that over here in the first part of the Mishnah also he's precise. So when it said mamzer, it means avadai mamzer. So that shows us that it cannot be two witnesses against two witnesses. If it would be two against two witnesses, certainly we wouldn't rule that the the kid is certainly a mamzer. So it must be, the case must be that it was one witness who said she could do evil. And the case was that one witness came and said, your child died and then your husband which means that one, based on one witness, she did give him. Then two witnesses came and overturned that ruling and said actually the child was alive at the time the husband, the, the, the husband died. So now it's overruled, it's a two against one, it's overruled and that's why we're removing her from the oven and that's why the child is a mom's head. And now we conclude our proof. Time is also betrayed. The only reason we overrule a single witness is because two witnesses came and said he was wrong. Allah If it wouldn't be for the two coming later, Muhammad, the single witness, would have been believed. And we see clearly you believe a single witness, even to move on to do evil, because that's precisely what happened. One witness came, he said that what the child died first in the husband. And based upon that, based upon the single witness, she did evil. Okay, so therefore we have completely resolved our question. We've resolved that a single witness is believed to allow a woman to remarry her yava. Now the Gemara gives us a different version. other people say, hello to you cannot even inquire about such a case if a single witness is believed to allow her to remarry, she herself is believed. Even a woman herself is believed to say her husband is dead and mater her to Yibam. not as the Mishnah says, When a woman in a regular case says, my husband died, she can remarried. In other words, the single witness that we believe could even be the woman herself. Interesting point. A new point that we're going to touch on in coming up. That even when the woman herself, she's the party involved. She says, my husband died. She could get remarried. Mace politis Or it's a Yibam case. And she claims her husband died. She could do Yibam. So that goes without saying that if the woman herself is believed, certainly we'd believe a different single witness. Where's the question? Do we accept a single witness testimony to be to the general population? Meaning to say, do we free a woman from being bound to ibum? How do we free a woman from being bound to ibum? We need two things to happen, right? We have somebody testifying that the of them died, but also we have to say, that, the, that, that first the, the, the husband died and then the child died. Meaning if the, if the testimony here is not allowing her to do ibn, but the opposite. It's saying you don't need to do ibn, you don't need a khalif, so you're free to go. Do I rely on testimony that a child died second? So therefore it's not an Ibam scenario, do I rely on such a testimony? Do I, could I rely on Eid Echad for that? And the reason will depend, and as we said, my time day What's the reason for a Is it because you don't lie about something that will be revealed? So a single witness wouldn't lie about this. No one's gonna it will be revealed whether or not the, the child died first or second. So therefore people won't lie about it. So we can trust with the only reason. Why the rabbis believe in single witnesses because she investigates carefully before remarrying. In this case, to move on from doing Yibam, she, she might not be careful. Why? Look at what the Gemara says. In opposite svara, there are times that she hates the yavam. Isn't that interesting? She might know, yes, brothers in law, you know, but sometimes you hate your brother. So maybe the only reason she'll investigate is because she'll want to go ahead and get into a new relationship with some new random stranger. But to go, but to go marry her yavam, the opposite. She doesn't want to do that, so she might be dafka not investigate so that she can free herself from her yavam. So this is the opposite type of question. Maybe you can't believe a single witness saying that she's free from yavam because maybe she's not going to investigate because she dafka hates her. Um, she dafka hates him. So. To this, the Gemara brings a proof from the Mishra. So they told her your husband died and then your, and then your child died. So they told her she was free from Yibam Veniseis. So she married somebody, random. the clothes and then they told her actually it actually was the reverse. And really you're Chayiv and Yibam, and really you're getting married to somebody before doing Yibam. So she has to leave her second husband and the children of Ramzir. So we go through the same exact proof. What's the case? If it was two, uh, uh, the initial testimony was two witnesses who says that she was free to go, and now two witnesses are saying she has to do Yibam. Two against two. As long as she's confident she's not sitting, Basin won't get involved. For If it's a mamzer if it's a Selvig mamzer it's only possible mamzer if it's a two-on-two. If you say the ta'an it wasn't precise, from the end of the Mishnah was precise, it must be the beginning of the Mishnah was precise also. So how could it be that we're saying the kid is a mamzah? It must be it was only a single witness. A single witness said that her child was alive at the time her husband died and that she was free from Ibam and that's why she was free. And it's only the time of it's only when two witnesses come and overrule that that we say she has to leave. But without the two witnesses coming and overruling it, the single witness from the outset would have been believed. So we see clearly a single witness is believed to say a woman is free to go from Yibam. So we defend the proof, really it was a two against two, why are you believing the second witnesses over the first witnesses? We're dealing with Hazama witnesses. What are Hazama witnesses? Normally in halacha, when it's a dispute in facts between two witnesses, it's a toss-up. You don't know who to believe. There's one case where you believe two witnesses over two other witnesses. One case in the world. What's the one case? Where the second pair of witnesses, they say, you can't testify. Because the moment you claim you saw the husband die, whatever it is, you were with us on a different place in the globe. So there's no way you could be witnesses. That is the one case where you always don't believe witnesses. It's not a two against two. You believe the witnesses who say that the first witnesses were disqualified. So just to give an example. Two witnesses say they saw, they witnessed a murder on the corner of 91st and Broadway at 2.30 p.m. Two other witnesses show up and they say, no, he didn't murder him. That's a two against two. We don't know who to believe. But if the second witnesses show up and they say, how could you testify about something at 2.30 p.m. on 91st and Broadway? You You were on 95th and Broadway at the time, so there's no way that you saw that. If that's what they say, then we believe the second witnesses that the first witnesses don't know about it. And that's why we reject their testimony. So that's what the Gemara is saying. That's the case here. It was initially two witnesses who said she was free to go to Ebom. But then what happened was two other witnesses were mazim them. Once they were mazim them, then we lost the testimony completely. So we end up not having a proof whether a single witness is believed to free a woman from Ebom. Again, the question is maybe we're relying on the fact that she'll investigate. And she won't investigate properly because she might hate her brother-in-law.